you're turning to Genesis 22, it's on the insert. I want to invite you tonight to come back. We have a prayer service that starts our prayer vigil that we have for 24 hours starting today, this afternoon, or this evening, I should say, at 445. That's just a short time of directed prayer. Then we'll have our Sunday evening gathering. We'll have some more directed prayer as well as our usual format and a fellowship meal after. But you also want to note tomorrow we have a special concert that's listed where our own Stephen Franklin and Tim Smale will be playing. Um, you've heard some of them already in the service, so I invite you all back tomorrow at 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary. We've returned to Genesis 22. Maybe some of you have noticed we already did this chapter. That's very, very alert. But we are on purpose spending another week here because I believe it's one of those chapters, one of those pivotal moments in the working of God's redemptive story where we have to hover over the top a bit and see the theme that is introduced here. In our prior review of Genesis 22 last week, we focused on the person of Abraham, um, his genuine and really mature faith at this point, at least compared to Abraham starting back in chapter 12. We see a real high point now in his walk with the Lord as God calls him to an action that is too hard to comprehend, to, to offer his beloved son up for sacrifice. So we viewed it um, very carefully through the lens of Abraham and that sacrifice and the faith God gave him, and even a, a connect point with us to realize that God brings tests and trials into our lives um, that relate to the level of faith he's given us. Um, he's not asking us to do what Abraham was asked to do. But nevertheless, we have things we're called to that are challenging, but we trust God because his word is true, and he'll not forsake us. So we viewed the episode from that angle. Now I want us to back up a bit and see the bigger biblical picture of what unfolds on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. It's a picture of what is to come. Uh, it's a picture of the central message of the Bible. It starts to blossom at this point. Here now as I read God's word, this is Genesis 22. I'll start at verse 6 and read to verse 14. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son for me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, what a special passage indeed that we find ourselves observing today. We first observed our spiritual father, Abraham, following your clear command by faith. Now, O Lord, help us to see that scarlet cord of Christ's substitution on our behalf as it makes itself plain here and then throughout the rest of your word. O Lord, your word is holy and it is true. Your word is sufficient and sanctifying. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we may seek to be shaped by the message of your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's a pretty common discussion, what is the message of Christianity? And there's all sorts of well-meaning explanations given and ones that are connected to the main message for sure. This past week we saw a young man in a football game who had his heart stopped. This is my hometown, as you know, of Buffalo, and I was watching this occur, and the whole thing, it seems surreal. Even now I'm stunned by what I saw. In the outpouring that happened afterwards, it was you know, generally encouraging. Now I know if we dissect it, you wonder what are the motives behind it, but the young man himself says he trusts in Christ. Many people in the community around him seemed to have really solid professions of faith in Christ, and there was lots of real substantive talk about knowing Christ that stemmed from this man's terrible, terrible ordeal, this traumatic ordeal. And then as he seemed to be coming out of this, as the paramedics worked, kept his heart going long enough to get it back to a regular rhythm, and now he's able to communicate and seems to be making some kind of recovery. It's an amazing thing. Um, but you'll hear people talk about how that event you know, it unified us, and people were praying together, and there's this, this talk about how that really brought folks together. I think that's true. I'm not denying that. But I think it's important to say that that kind of thing on its own, the unifying of people, that's not actually the primary message of Christianity or the Bible. In fact, <clears throat> being very, very direct about it, the Bible's not primarily about being kind to one another. The Bible's not chiefly about world peace. The Bible is not first concerned with healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, or relieving the plight of the poor. The Bible's main message is actually not simply love one another. The Bible's central theme is not about obeying the Ten Commandments. Yes, the Bible has much to say about these things. These are definite outflows of someone who is a Christian. But the Bible's main message is one of atonement for sin. The Bible is about how we sinners can be made right with God. Central to the message of Scripture is that work of God on behalf of sinful and unworthy human beings called substitutionary atonement. By substitutionary, 
we mean someone substitutes for us, takes our place. By atonement, we mean a sufficient payment for the debt of our sins. That's what is meant by substitutionary atonement. Robert Rayburn said it well, so I'll capture his words, and I put them on your outline, as a bit of a proposition about this high-level view of what is presented in Genesis 22 in the whole of the Bible for that matter. Look what Rayburn says. Substitutionary atonement, the death of our substitute in our place to pay on our behalf the penalty of our sins is the scarlet cord that ties the Bible together. Look at our passage before us, verse 7 of chapter 22. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now pay close attention to Abraham's answer. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Then look down at verse 12, what unfolds. He said, do not lay your hand in the boy. This is the angel speaking to stop Abraham from slaughtering his son. Or to do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Here is the key wording instead of his son. In the passage, there's a picture of the substitutionary atonement of Christ to come. And right there in the passage, there's a demonstration of instead of Isaac being slaughtered, the ram substitutes, takes his place. So that, verse 14, Abraham is prompted to call the place, the Lord will provide. Here in Genesis 22, we have a very vivid depiction of substitutionary atonement, accepting the sacrifice of one for the sins of another. It's a prophetic forecast, if you will. The question Isaac asks, it's the question for the ages. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, replies Abraham. This response of Abraham, I submit to you, sets the stage for the whole of the rest of the Bible. From this point forward in Genesis 22, the Bible tells how God will provide for himself the lamb. The lamb is for us but it's to appease himself. It's one pleasing to himself. And God will do that providing. And that's the story of the Bible. Verse 13. Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. A momentary substitution for Isaac to picture this bigger topic. It was a ram, though, not the lamb that Abraham was talking ultimately about in prophetic terms in verse 8. The rest of the Bible will seek to answer 
where is this, ram, this lamb that God will provide? From this episode, the imagery of substitutionary atonement by a lamb explodes in Scripture. You cannot tell what the meaning of Scripture is without describing this concept laden in this passage. So we might rightly ask of the Bible, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And God responds through the revelation he gives us from Genesis 22 and beyond, and of course before that as well, but in more thorough terms now. I am providing for myself the lamb, and here is how this unfolds. Here's the story of that. Again, substitutionary atonement, the death of our substitute in our place to pay on our behalf the penalty of our sins. This is the scarlet cord that ties the Bible together. You know, it was Rayburn who reminded me of one of the seminal works on the person of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus is the name of his book. B.B. Warfield is the author. He was one of the presidents of Princeton Seminary back when Princeton believed in the Bible. And that was a long time ago. Pay close attention to what Warfield wrote about Christ's substitutionary atonement. Not only is the doctrine of the sacrificial death of Christ embodied in Christianity as an essential element of the system, but in a very real sense, it constitutes Christianity. Christianity did not come into the world to proclaim a new morality and sweeping away all the supernatural props by which men were wont to support their trembling, guilt-stricken souls, only to throw them back on their own right arms to conquer a standing before God for themselves. It wasn't setting up a new moralism. Christianity came to proclaim the real sacrifice for sin which God had provided in order to supersede all the poor fumbling efforts which humankind had made and were making to provide a sacrifice for sin for themselves and planting people's feet on this to bid them to go forward. Finally, Warfield says, it was in this sign that Christianity conquered. And it is in this sign alone that it continues to conquer the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We may think what we will of such a religion. What we cannot be denied, what cannot be denied is that Christianity is such a religion. Now let's briefly trace this motif because it's so important and it's so central to Scripture. What we see introduced here in Genesis 22 has some background that builds up to it. There were sacrifices before Abraham brings Isaac to Moriah. You recall that one is forecasted in Genesis 3.15. After mankind falls into sin, God says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then he says, the seed of the woman will bruise your head. The offspring of the woman will bruise your head. This is a picture of the Christ to come, the second Adam. And you, devil, will bruise his heel. So in crushing the serpent's head, there will be harm done to the one stepping on the serpent, the Lord Jesus. There's a sacrifice that will have to be made. Now the extent of it isn't clear. We don't know the particulars. We can't picture him yet. But we know that there is a commitment by God to have this sacrifice made in order to undo the effects of the fall. In Genesis 3, 
God actually slayed animals to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. They were sacrificed, if you will. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, they brought offerings, which were sacrifices from the things they produced. Both of them brought these things to God, knowing in some way, having some concept, that they owed something to God, that their existence was owed to God somehow. And the breakdown, of course, happens with how much Cain thinks he actually needs God. But embedded in the mindset of the people before Abraham was this shortfall with God that needed to be made up and sacrifices pointed to this. You remember in Genesis 8 when the ark finally rests, Noah sacrifices one of every clean animal when the ark landed. That's a big step of faith when you have nothing else now except what's on that ark for food and for, and for livestock and you're sacrificing them because he recognizes he's dependent upon God. In Genesis 12, from the time Abraham's called, he builds these altars wherever he has an encounter with God. And we can assume on those altars he put sacrifices. That's what altars were built for. That's probably why Isaac knows when they're heading up to Moriah, something's wrong. There's no lamb. Father, where's the lamb, he asks. You know, it's interesting, Job, from the book of Job, he predates Moses, so it's before the law of Moses. He is a contemporary probably with Abraham. And even he has an inkling of the need for sacrifice. In the opening chapter of Job, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He kept giving offerings for the sins of his children. Now you'll notice that there's a knowledge that something's missing. We owe God something. Sacrifices are made, but they have to be made continually because they're not enough. All of this predates Moriah in what we see with Abraham. A clear notion of our sins and shortcomings in the need for payment. But to this point, the payments in themselves were never sufficient to cure the problem. Now that brings us to our text, the imagery of the sacrifice of Isaac, and in particular, the lamb that develops from here as the major picture of the coming Christ. Look with me at Genesis 22, briefly again. The opening verses, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, he said, here I am. And notice the language used to describe Isaac. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering. Here we have a picture developing. We call this a type. This is God the Father and God the Son in type form here. It's a true story unfolding with immediate impact. We looked at that already. But it's also a picture of something that is to come something that is becoming more clear. You think of the birth of Isaac. If Abraham represents God the Father and Isaac represents God the Son, think of the, really the miraculous birth of Isaac. Not as miraculous as the birth of Christ. None of this type is as good as the actual. But to be born to a woman 90 years old who was barren, we recognize this is the supernatural work of God to bring Isaac 
take your son, your only son, whom you love. You could feel the affection between Abraham and Isaac, the buildup, all the things we've seen move to this moment of this bond between them. And God describes this bond in a similar way to how he speaks of his son Jesus. In Mark 1, verse 11, You are my beloved son, God the Father says to Jesus. With you I am well pleased. Now if you're hearing God the Father speak of his son this way, the initial Jewish audience would have no trouble connecting the imagery happening between Abraham and Isaac, now God the Father and God the Son, who had come, the promised Son. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Back to our passage. Take your Son, your only Son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Verse 3 says, So Abraham, he rose early, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him. So he had two servants who were witnessing what was happening between the father and the son. Similarly, as Jesus undergoes his trial, there are witnesses who see what happens between the father and the son. It says that he cut wood for the burnt offering. So the father prepares the materials that his son would be sacrificed on and with. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. There is a careful, intentional preparation of Isaac for sacrifice. There would later be a time of selecting and preparing Passover lambs for sacrifice. There would be a time of testing and preparing for Christ to go to the cross. It says in verse 5 of our passage, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It's very intimate between the father and the son. Faith that Abraham believes that God will sustain his promise and somehow let Isaac come back to life if necessary. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. The imagery, just, it just screams out at us. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. The father lays on the son the wood for his offering. Abraham took fire and the knife. Fire, a picture of God's righteous, purifying, holy judgment. And they went to the place of sacrifice together. An intense moment between the sacrificing father and the obedient son. God the father in eternity past agrees with God the son in eternity past. Now they come together in time and space not in Moriah, but in Calvary. Back to our episode, Isaac says to his father, my father, he says, here I am. Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? The question of all questions in this passage. I'm submitting to you that this question sets up the rest of what the Bible unfolds. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. He says lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham knows that God will provide a lamb. And it will be for himself and of his own standards. He'll provide this. He's speaking, not knowing the specifics of what will happen with Isaac, but he knows this to be true. God will provide for himself. If God commands it or demands it, he will provide for giving it. So they went, both of them together. Both of them together. That's said twice. 
showing the intimate agreement between the Father and the Son. You'll notice that Isaac at this point, we said last week, is 12 or 13 years old. I've read some commentators that think he must have been older, whatever the case. I know how many of you parents are able to chase around your teenage children if they run away from you. But this is 112-year-old Abraham. If Isaac really wants to get away, he can get away. But he's complying because he trusts his father this way. John 10, the Lord Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Then it says in verse 9 of our passage, When they came to the place of which God had told them, told him, Abraham built the altar and he laid wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. His father put him there. We know the story, how it unfolds here, how God intervenes and gives a substitute. But we know what Paul says in Romans about God the Father and God the Son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How much more meaning that has when we grasp the human reality of what we've witnessed with Abraham and Isaac. Then verse 10 of our passage, Abraham reaches out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called from heaven and Abraham, he said, Abraham, Abraham, and as quick as he ever said it, here I am, Abraham says. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You really believe in me. Now, the exact parallel stops because God did not spare his son, his own son. But Abraham, sensing the need, something has to be done to show appreciation for God's grace. And God even provides for that. He looks up, verse 13, and he sees a ram caught in a thicket. That's not an everyday occurrence. These are strong beasts. And there's this ram caught by his horns. Horns that had to be big enough to be caught. That's a a large animal. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. A ram for Isaac. A substitute sacrifice for Isaac. A substitutionary atonement. Not permanent, albeit, but clearly for that moment. Of course, all of this takes place on Mount Moriah. 1,000 years from the time that Abraham goes up that mountain with Isaac. 1,000 years later, it's a long time. That's when David's son, Solomon, one of the seeds of Abraham, a precursor to Christ, David and Solomon, the temple is built on that site. And the temple for the next 1,000 years to the time of Jesus, from Solomon to Jesus, is the place where the sacrifices of the lambs and other animals would be continuously recognized and practiced. So Abraham, verse 14 of our passage, he called that place, or called the name of the place, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Present and future tense. We don't have a tense quite like that in English. The present and ongoing. It said... To this day, so Moses writing now, kind of giving commentary, he's writing 500 years 
after Abraham. It's said to this day on that spot, Israelites, the first audience, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. A picture of what happened and a picture of what's going to happen. And the Israelites needed to hear it just like we do. It's about something to be fulfilled. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Moriah, in eyesight of Calvary. The expansion of this imagery of the sacrificial lamb explodes in the Old Testament from this point forward. From Genesis 22 and Abraham, it just keeps building momentum, uh, more clarity. The picture becomes more obvious when he calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. The final thing he does is recorded in Exodus 12, and we shouldn't miss the weight of this. In Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now I know you know what this picture is but they don't have all the specifics yet. God's unfolding the plan. When Isaac said, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This is one more link to see who Jesus is. So when Jesus comes, we won't miss him. Then it's said of God to Moses, then they shall take some of the blood of the slaughtered lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. That first Passover, which is what's recorded in Exodus 12, becomes the model for the regular sacrifices of Israel, done in the tabernacle first, then in the temple. They're meant to place before the people their need for the atonement that only God could provide. And the lamb would picture the eventual perfect lamb. And the sprinkling of the blood meant we're covered by the sacrifice. Our sins are atoned for. For all the complexities of what we read in the Old Testament, don't miss the simplicity of the gospel. Believe on the Lamb of God in His potency, His work, and you're saved. How do you know? Sprinkle the doorposts with the blood. Now the blood of these animals couldn't actually take away their sin. The sin against God was committed by a man by human being, and so the price had to be paid by a human being. Animals were representations of what was necessary. You know, the image of sacrifice develops throughout the law in the book of Leviticus, and the specifics of what happens, though graphic, are telling. Moses writes in Leviticus, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So you have to be personal with the substitute, placing your hand on their head as though to transfer your sins to that innocent animal. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. This is the consecrating of the priests for their duties. Whatever the case, the imagery is still the same. And as the sacrificer is going through this, they're thinking, this should be me. I'm the one who deserves to die. 
but this innocent animal has to be my substitute. This animal has to die so I can live. The sacrifices of the tabernacle and the temple, from that point they went on for 300 more years. 300 years. And the people of God were growing apathetic. They were not sacrificing as much as they should. Sometimes it became a total ritual to them. Even bringing animals that were disfigured, they were not unblemished, mocking what it even meant. And God raised up the prophets. And you know, one of the main messages of the prophets had to do with their view of their own sin. They didn't think it was that serious. They just assumed upon God's favor. And they weren't sacrificing as they should have sacrificed. And God prompts by his spirit the prophet Isaiah to write in very specific terms so that we might know who the Lamb of God is. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. For the faithful, this picture that Isaiah paints would start to revive them. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways. And 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah writes, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's as if the prophet Isaiah was sitting at Calvary when he writes this description in his 53rd chapter. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This begins in earnest in Genesis 22. In explodes in biblical revelation going forward with the 53rd chapter of Isaiah being the most vivid picture. And then we come to the New Testament where the Lamb of God is finally revealed. I know you know what's coming, but I think one author or one commentator said it best. The Gospels are in some sense the Bible's commentary on the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Isaac asks his father back in Genesis 22, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham says that God will provide the lamb. Years and years of sacrifice follow. Then on a fateful day, just outside Jerusalem with a bunch of outcasts that nobody thinks much of, a voice starts crying in the wilderness after much silence, preparing people for one who will come after him. And the day comes when John is standing there with his followers, baptizing them into the message of repentance that he's been giving. He says to them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moriah, where the temple was built 
and a thousand years of lamb slaying was an eye shot of this whole event. And Moriah is an eye shot of Calvary where God the Father did not spare his son but offered him up for us all. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. One of the things I most appreciated about the unity that came about from this young man who almost died is that people were listening and I heard a few voices say, hey, now that we're all unified listening, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's the best thing about unity is it causes us to listen to what the message is that we need to hear. The life of Jesus is about being our substitute. First, he proves he is a worthy sacrifice by his perfectly obedient life. This is what we call as active obedience on our behalf. Uh, to actively live out the life we can't live out in our sin. Adam actively sinned and we follow suit. Christ actively obeys his Father's law perfectly. And so through him, his righteousness is in our place. Second, Jesus willingly lays himself down in our place as our substitute. We call this his passive obedience. It's on our behalf. This is the passion of our Lord. So brothers and sisters, Genesis 22, it's pivotal. The Bible is not primarily about being kind to one another, world peace, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, relieving the plight of the poor. It's not chiefly about loving one another or even obeying God as such. The main message of the scripture is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. Believe on him. But there is a profound impact when we believe on him. In fact, the Corinthians needed to hear this just like we do. They came out of license and paganism where they lived lives of, of terrible open sin. They came to Christ by the free gospel of grace by believing on the Lord Jesus. But they were struggling because their life didn't seem to evidence what had happened internally. internally. And so Paul says in Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are a leaven. Now that you're in Christ, get rid of that stuff that's, that's messed up your life so much. Then he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore, in light of that, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Because he's taken our place, we have his righteousness, we're accepted by the Father, we have newness of life, now we can go and do these things that manifest what God has done for us. Now, because of the Lamb's sacrifice, we are right with God. Because we're right with God, we're empowered to new living. We can be at relative peace with others now, and eventually there will be actual peace, peace the world over, as God calls it. God will heal all our ailments. In fact, this is exactly what the psalmist forecasts about the salvation of God in full. David writes in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, 
who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Yes, these things are important in the biblical story. They are the fruits that come from people who have believed on the Lamb of God. When our sins are forgiven, we are born again. God will give us a love for him and for others. God will give us wills that want to please him and obey him. That's our eternal existence. This is the glory that awaits. In all this, all this is because the Lord has provided for himself a lamb. The lamb of God who's taken away our sins. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering, Isaac asked. What a great question. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, replies Abraham. And the message of the rest of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. And behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I can scarce take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then, then sings my soul, my Savior, God, to thee, how great thou art. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. <clears throat> oh Lord, we thank you for your completed plan of salvation in Christ. Oh Lord Jesus, you have executed for us the office of a priest in your once offering up of yourself as the worthy sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. And even more than that, you, O oh Lord, as we come to you, you're now making continual intercession for us. O oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God, washed in your precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Amen.